Well, welcome again to this Palm Sunday. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. Um, a few things about me. Uh, I got braces on this week, so that was a lot of fun. Really painful. Not not a good thing. Uh, but, no, it is a good thing. It will be a good thing. So, uh, anyway, if, if my mouth looks a little bit, like, you know, puffy or a little bit, it, it's not Botox, it's braces, okay? <laughs> so we're, just so we're clear, you know. I feel like a teenager again. Like, you can expect, you know, fast driving, uh, questionable decisions, and Mountain Dew, you know. I don't know. I don't know. So, <laughs> not giving any of you teenagers license now, okay? Just, just so we're clear. All right. Um. Let me pray, and then we'll we'll get into things. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we as we go into your word today, we just want you to open it to us. We want to see the King. We want to see you for who you are. So I pray that my words would lend themselves to that end. Hosanna to the King. May our hearts be ready. In Jesus' name, Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. How many of you grew up saying that a lot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I heard I heard the words coming from you. Some of you, as even I was saying it, I said it a lot growing up in a Presbyterian church. And I love the Apostles' Creed, even if I have a problem with descending into hell, that, that theological thing. Um, but interestingly enough, I just finished a book by uh, N.T. Wright called How Jesus Became King. Excellent book. And what Wright points out is something I had never thought about. Never thought about. In the Apostles' Creed, I, I know we're summarizing the major doctrines of our faith. But you notice that the Creed goes like this. Conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And there's nothing in the middle about his life and his ministry. You ever notice that? You go from birth to death. Born of Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. What happened there? And of course, the easy answer is, there was never a controversy about Jesus' life. People questioned his deity. People questioned a lot of things about Jesus. His death, his resurrection... These things have to be established in the creed. But there's not a lot of questions about his life. And so what what Wright says in his book, How God Became King, his proposal is that because, because we haven't talked about the meaning of Jesus' life, 
Some of us just don't get it. What's the point of Jesus' life, his ministry? Would it have mattered if he was born of a virgin, grew up, and at like 18 or 20, having no earthly ministry, went straight to the cross? Would that have been okay? And I think we can all say, well, no, we love the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we love the life of Christ. I took a class on it when I was at Moody because I just wanted to dig into that. It was an elective. We covered the Gospels, but I just wanted to dig into the life of Christ. And so what, what Wright says is there have been many proposals for how we are to understand Jesus' earthly ministry. Some of them would include uh, Jesus did his ministry to show us, to prove to us that he is God. Like when he says, I and the Father are one, and he does the miracles he does. When he, when, when he calms the raging sea, there's an echo of uh, the psalmist saying God calms the raging sea. I mean, there, there's all of these evidences that Jesus really is God. He's more than a man. Uh, some people say the purpose of Jesus' life is his teaching ministry, ethical teaching, teaching us how to live, showing us an example of what the good life really is. And, and he lists four other ones on, on what we commonly say Jesus' life is about. But, he, but his thesis in the book is that we've missed one of the main ones. Or, or Wright would argue the main one. Wright argues that Jesus' earthly ministry is how God became king. And that in all of Jesus' ministry, he was proclaiming what? The kingdom of God. And when demons were driven out, what did he say? The kingdom of God is here. It's amongst you. When demons get driven out, that's exactly what happens. When the sick are healed, that's what happens. It was all about the kingdom and Jesus being the king. And then you lead into Good Friday and you've got all this king talk. The sign, the crown of thorns, all these things. You've got Palm Sunday. Hosanna to the king. And I think Wright argues persuasively that that's what's happening in the Gospels. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want us to see Jesus' earthly ministry as Him becoming King over the world. Culminating in His death on the cross. Where He's, well we'll get to that on Good Friday, where we see Him as King. A suffering King. Now, I do have a few problems with the book. If you end up reading it, you will love it for its scholarship. You will love the insights you get into Jesus' life. You will love it. Uh, a couple things I would just caution you if you end up reading this. Again, excellent book. But one of the ramifications of Jesus being the king, Wright wants to argue then that if Jesus is the king of the world, he, he starts to blur the separation of church and state, church and government. In fact, he just obliterates it. And he doesn't really tell you what that means, but he definitely argues for a, a theocracy of sorts. Uh, I have issues with that. Um, I have issues with how Wright sees substitutionary atonement. If you're a theologian, that, that's how Jesus substituted himself for us. We're all theologians, by the way. We all believe about God. But, but um, how Jesus substituted himself for us on the cross, he has some issues with that. Um, so there's some things I disagree with, but, but the beauty of how he shows Jesus as king just grabbed my heart and how he said, 
this is something that we often miss. We don't talk enough about the kingdom in the church. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, I, I could see that. I could see that. So I don't know if the main... I, I'm not 100% the main point of Jesus' life is how he became king. But I think it's up there in at least the top three that this is a major purpose of why Jesus lived an earthly, did an earthly ministry. So I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19 as we look at this in more depth. We're going to spend this Holy Week considering Jesus the King. And we're going to start today in Luke 19. But we're going to start a little earlier than maybe what you expect. We're not going to start on Palm Sunday. We're going to start in Jericho a day or two before in Jericho, early Luke 19, uh, Jesus has a visit, uh, a, a, a little guy who really, really, really wants to get his attention. A little guy who's reviled by many, Zacchaeus. And in Jericho, Zacchaeus climbs a tree, the Lord he wanted to see. And you know, Jesus calls him down and, and eats in his house. And he says, salvation has come to this house. You know, Zacchaeus is giving back over and over what he has taken from people and then some. And, and, and you get this impression that the atmosphere in Jericho is just, it's electric. The expectation of people is so high. It's the Messiah. It's the King. And he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho, I believe, is 18 miles from Jerusalem. He's getting closer and closer to the city, the capital, where kings rule. And he's doing miracles, and he's in Zacchaeus' house. And you just get this feeling like, everybody wants this. I mean, Jesus himself has said a chapter or two before, the kingdom of heaven is in you. Really? In me? Right now? Right now? In you? The kingdom. Here. And everybody's like, okay, I know what that means. Let's overthrow Rome. Let's take over. Let's have justice right now in this land. Political. Let's go there. And of course, they totally missed the suffering that the Messiah would have to undergo. They were ready to proclaim him king. But this is the point, and I want to weave this point throughout this Holy Week. If you do readings for this Holy Week, which I encourage you to, you know, read Jesus' Passion, the Passion Week. Read it after Luke 19. Uh, I want you to see that Jesus is a different kind of king, setting up a different kind of kingdom. It's not what they expected. Maybe it's not even what we expect. So Jesus wants to correct their thinking. Let's get rid of Rome. Our Messiah is going to overcome the world. He's going to take over the whole place. And one day we know the Messiah will do that, by the way. We call that the millennium, Revelation 20. But something different's happening now. And he wants to give them good instruction for how they should think about his kingship. So if we're going to understand Palm Sunday, 
we've got to understand early Luke 19. Jesus clarifies the meaning of Palm Sunday for us. Look at Luke 19, verse 11. This is while he's with Zacchaeus and a whole bunch of excited people. He says this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now there you go. There's the two reasons Jesus told this parable. Two reasons. One, because they're near Jerusalem. That's where it's all going to happen. That's where the, that's where the king is going to rule. Jerusalem. And Jesus is 18 miles away. You know? And they're so excited. But the second reason he had to tell this parable is because they thought the kingdom of God was going to happen right here, right now, in fullness. What they didn't understand is what uh, theologians call the already not yet. Jesus' kingdom is already here. It's already here. But, but one day it's going to be here fully. And we're going to see Him rule. Not, not just rule from the throne of heaven, but rule from the throne of David on earth. It's already here, and yet not yet fully here. How do you explain that to people? That it's already here, but not yet fully here. How do you communicate a concept complicated like that to people who are sick and tired of being ruled by a foreign power? How do you tell them? This is how Jesus told them. Verse 12, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed a king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas. Minas money, by the way, about three months wages. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his servants hated him. And they sent a delegation after him and they said, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money or to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you've been trustworthy in the small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Verse 20, Then another servant came and said, Sir, Here's your mina. I I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you were a a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him. Give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He answered, I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It kind of sounds like the parable of the talents on steroids, right? You know, like a little bit, like you with me on that? Parable of the talents, right? That's the one we usually talk about where, 
where the master leaves and says, here's different amounts of talents, but this one's different. And I've always kind of preferred the talents. You know, like that's what I've been used to growing up. I don't know that I've ever really thought about the minas. I like the word talent better anyway because it sounds like a gift, even though it's money, you know. It kind of sounds like a gift. It kind of lends itself to thinking about the gifts that God's given us. Minas, right? The reason Jesus told this parable at this time was to teach the lesson that he is a different kind of king. To understand the parable of the minas, you have to, you have to think like someone in Jericho. When Jesus told this story, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have understood what he was alluding to. There was a guy named Herod Archelaus. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but Herod, we talked about this last week a little bit. Herod the Great was the king at, at Christmas time that wanted to kill baby Jesus. The wise men came to him. Herod the Great had a son named Archelaus. We'll just call him Archelaus so that the Herod doesn't confuse everybody. Herod had a son named Archelaus. Too many Herods out there. What was up with that? Um, and uh, Archelaus had a position of authority in that area. He was ruling. He wasn't like the king, but he had some authority. He abused his authority. He got into skirmishes with the Jewish people. One time he got ticked off and he had 3,000 Jewish people massacred. Canceled Passover that year. Had those people killed. 3,000 people. He stood in line to inherit a kingdom from Caesar. And so he went to Rome, hoping to take over Israel, you know, be given kingdoms to rule. And he went to Caesar, and when the Jewish people found out that he was going to inherit a kingdom, they sent a delegation of Jewish people to Caesar. And the delegation said, we don't want Archelaus to be our king. He's a bad guy. Sound familiar to the parable? It's amazing to me because, you know, Jesus uses a bad guy to compare himself to. You have to get over the bad guy thing, you know, and look to see the true comparison here. He's not, he's not saying I'm a bad guy. He's saying people don't want me to be king. So they said, we don't want Archelaus to be king. Caesar listened to them. He judged the matter and he said, you know what? You people are right. Archelaus doesn't deserve to be king. I'm going to keep giving him authority. I think they called him an ethnarch or, or something like that. You know, he, he had a limited authority. And basically he would, if he proved himself kingly, he could become the king. Well, Archelaus never did prove himself very kingly. He never did become king. He did have an amazing palace built for himself in the city of Jericho. Now do you see the connections? Now do you see Jesus is a different kind of king than what they expected? We could say, A, first of all, he is a nobleman who goes away to receive a kingdom. You know, he was born the king of the Jews, and yet, to get the kingdom, he had to go away. He had to go away. He, he has traveled from the grave into the resurrection, and then he ascended to his father. 
Jesus is the nobleman of the parable. In verse 12, I think, if you wanted to check it out again. In verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Jesus is in that country right now, in the country of heaven, and he's going to come back. But he's been given a kingdom. That's B, but, but he is uh, B, he's a physically absent king. I don't want to say he's an absent king because he is actually ruling. Jesus says, I'm with you always. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But physically, he's not sitting on a throne in Jerusalem ruling over the whole world right now. Even though the whole world belongs to him and has been given to him, says this parable. He's physically absent. And yet he's in the the control room of heaven at the right hand of God. Working his will out on earth. Even as we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And see, he is the returning king who will one day actually rule, physically rule, over the whole earth. He's coming back. He's going to return. He's going to uh, talk to his servants and see what they did with their mina, which we'll get to in a second. He's coming back. Coming back for inspection, in a sense. Now, that's a different kind of king, isn't it? And uh, that inspection thing grabs my attention. I love Jesus the King. But one day he's going to come back and take a close look at my life and your life. What will he see when he returns? Well, you know what he... I love this, and I wanted to... I didn't know how to connect this, but what's one of the first things Jesus does on Palm Sunday after he goes into Jerusalem on the donkey? Not every gospel tells us this, but I can't remember which one now, but... Well, one of the gospel writers tell us, I think, I think it was Mark maybe, that he goes into the temple, takes a look around. The king returns, takes a look around, and then he leaves. And then he comes back the next morning and he is angry because the people in the temple are cheating people and overcharging for the sacrifices. And, and Jesus displays his anger in the temple. You know that story. The king is not happy with how his servants have taken their responsibilities. And that angry overturning of the tables is a foreshadowing of when the king returns the second time and inspects our temple and takes a look around. What will he see? Hopefully not turning over my tables. Um, when I uh, when I was in uh, in college, undergrad, one of the one of the worst weeks ever was finals week, and I would have these dreams. You you know them. I still have them to this day. And you you know how the dream goes. Some of you are nodding your heads. You know exactly what I mean. You have this dream. It's a nightmare, really. That that you have overslept that you hit the snooze button, that you were late to class and you had a strict professor that said, nope, nope, you're not. For me, it was always Greek class. That was what the dream was about. It was always a specific class. Dr. Sauer, I love that man, but he was terrifying. 
terrifying. <laughs> um, and I would dream about missing his class for the final exam. And, and, and I would dream that there was so much on that exam that I was going to have to retake the whole class next semester, you know? That's what the dream would be. How many of you have had that dream? Okay. How many of you had that dream in your adulthood after you're done with college? And it's all, see, see, that's it. It's a nightmare. It's worse than going to class in your underwear. That's the other one. How many of you have had that one? You know, that's, you don't want to raise your hand. There's one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the other one you don't want to have. But I always felt like the exam had greater ramifications. I don't know what that means, but you know. <laughs> um, the funny thing is, I was preaching through this last night, and I made the underwear joke last night. I thought I was really funny last night when I was preaching through it. And uh, I had the dream last night. I am not kidding you. I am not kidding. Now, for those of you visual, just have a blank screen in front of your face or something. I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> we shouldn't talk about it because you're going to have that dream tonight. All right. And you're going to thank me for it. Right. Um, there is something... There is something uh, nerve-wracking about exams. There's something nerve-wracking about job interviews. Like someone's examining me, and, and they want to know my strengths, they want to know my weaknesses, but I don't want to talk about my weaknesses, but they're going to try to make me talk about them. You know, there's something really nerve-wracking about those kinds of things. Maybe we ought to examine the parable of the minas, and get a sense for what's that exam going to be like. Maybe we can study. Maybe we can get ready. You know? Okay, uh, let's look at the, the minas for a second. Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus sets up a different kind of kingdom. What's the kingdom exam going to be like? What's the kingdom exam about? Okay? Um, all right. Let me find my place in my notes. Here we go. Okay. Um, A. When you look at the parable of the minas, you have in verse, uh, I think it's 13. Let's find it here. He called ten of the servants and he gave them ten minas. I love this. I mean, let me tell you how much I love this. Ten minas, uh, one mina is uh, <laughs> it's worth three months of wages, okay? That's one mina. He gives his servants, ten servants, ten minas. I love that it's ten. You want to know why I love that it's ten? I don't have any deep understanding of the number ten, and that's why I love it. Now, maybe, maybe you have a deep understanding of the number ten, but I don't. If he said twelve, what would you immediately think? The apostles, right? If it was twelve servants, twelve minas, you'd be like, oh, those apostles are going to be judged, oh boy. But it was ten. Because it's you and me. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Jesus one day will call me in and say, it wasn't a random number, Pastor. Okay, then I'll stand corrected. And I'll be so sorry. But it feels a little random. And at the very least, I can say, it's not 12. It's 10. And, and it's 10 minus. And I love this because, A, we all get the same gift. And the parable of the talents is also very true. And the parable of the talents... Jesus gives different amounts to different people. And some of you, you realize that. You look and you say, this is my talent. It looks different than yours. Well, man, you got some great talents. I didn't get those, those really great ones, but I got mine. I'm going to, you know, however you work that out. 
I love the parable of the minas because everybody gets the same gift. You get one. One mina. Three months wages. All you get. And of course, that leads to the question, well then, what is this gift? Because he gives the minas and then he goes away to get his kingdom. Go use your mina. What is it? And you have to ask the question then, what's the one thing all of us got from Jesus? In common. Salvation. And how do you invest when he says, put this money to work? How do you put your salvation to work? My thought is, and and again, I could be wrong. We could talk about this in cross-training. My thought is that the mina is the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it's not just for me to fold up in this little thing and put it away. I got it. I got my mina. I'm good. Now I'm going to put it in a safe and and I'm going to lock it up and leave it there. But we all have the same gift. Equally, you've received the gospel. Whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're popular or notorious, no matter what you are, we're all equal in the cross. We all come to the cross in the same way as beggars needing salvation. Oh man, at Christmas, I always try to get my kids uh, an equal gift. Right? Maybe? Okay, okay. You know, I want them to have an equal gift. And and I don't always do, I'm not always perfect. Sometimes one of the kids looks and says, look what they got, you know. Um, We don't do that in the church. Because we've all got the same thing. It's all salvation. And we're all equal. So he gave the same gift, a mina. B, I'll also point out, We have the freedom to invest the gift however we choose. I mean, as long as it's ethical and moral. We can invest the gospel in any way we choose. I invest by preaching the gospel from the front of a church. I invest the gospel by sitting down with people, having a conversation with them, and talking about Jesus. Some of you have done that with in this room. Um, you have freedom. Some of you are going to have a barbecue this summer and invite your neighbors. I love that the mina doesn't come with the instruction manual. Ten easy ways to invest your mina by Jesus Christ. You know, it's not like that. It's, It's, what are you passionate about? Put the gospel into that. What are you good at? Put the gospel into that. You invest however you've been designed. Whatever you're passionate about, you can put the gospel into that and impact the people around you. That's it. That's how you invest. Some of you hand a tract to the waiter, you know. Some of you have a conversation with a coworker. Some of you pray fervently for your family to come to faith in Christ. Invest, invest, invest your mina. Do it. You have freedom to do it. B or C. Um, I had to talk about the hostile territory just for a minute. When the master gave the minas, he went away. As he was going away, just like Archelaus, there was a delegation of people that came behind him and said, we don't want this guy to be our king. And you understand, you're investing your mina 
in a place that doesn't want Jesus as king. You know? I mean, as nice as your neighbors are, and they might be very nice, as, as, as gentle as your coworkers are, as fun as your cousin is, they may be part of the delegation that came after and said, we don't want this king. We don't want this Jesus. And you wonder why there's the antagonism against the church in America today and across the world. It's people shouting, we don't want your king. Keep your king. Only the reality is, God made the world. He owns the world and He has given the world to His Son. You can reject Him if you want. He's still your king. And so we are serving in hostile territory with people that don't want King Jesus. We've got to keep that in mind. Maybe as we invest our mina, they'll see the king in us and realize, I had him all wrong. I had your king all wrong. I thought he was this, and now I see he's this. Because I see him in the way he rules in your life. Now, they're never going to say it like that. You know, No one's going to come up to you and say, I see Jesus, the king, is ruling in your life pretty well today. I might follow that king. You know, they're never going to say it like that, you know. But, but you get my, my point. The point is, as they see Jesus rule in your life, they may want to join that king. We take it back. We don't reject him. And then, and then uh, D, finally, we will receive rewards after our work evaluation. Uh, boy, here we go. Um, when Jesus talks in, uh, we'll say, 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent out for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they gained from it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Now, the point being, this is a huge reward. I mean, you were given three months' wages. Whatever that, however many thousand dollars that would be in our, in our economy, invest it. And oh, by the way, if you do well, I'm giving you cities. Now, we talked about heaven last fall. Love that series we did. Um, I, I don't know if giving, getting a city is like a literal city. Like in, in heaven, on the new earth, will we actually be in charge of cities? Maybe. We're going to rule with Christ. But whatever it is, I want to say it this way. If you take your responsibility seriously, you've been given the gospel, the good news. If you take that seriously, in heaven you get more responsibility. That's your reward. That's what you get. Now I know there's crowns involved and there's treasure involved. And I always think about treasure but, but how about the treasure of God giving you more to do for Him? I mean, just think. There could be CEOs in this life, Christian CEOs, that are like the last guy who took his mina, folded it up, and kind of put it away. Like, they've received the gospel in some sense, but they didn't do anything with it. Maybe they'll be scrubbing floors in heaven. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but... But, but, but you get this sense that you just take what God's given you and He gives you more. That's the principle going on here. 
You could have, you could be the lowest of the lowly Christian in charge of a hundred cities in heaven because you've taken the gospel and invested it. And that's what the master called you to do. So I, I know we all have to make money. I know we all have to work. But how's your work going for your master? How's it going? I heard the president of the EFCA, Kevin Compline, speak at a pastor's conference uh, yesterday in uh, Stevens Point. And uh, he shared his heart for the free church. And I loved it. And he said something that just really, it really his whole message was about this yesterday. He said, um, we see that our country is changing. The, land, the cultural landscape is changing morally. We also see the landscape is changing culturally, um, ethnically. It's becoming more beautiful. And he said, there are small towns. He's working in Minnesota now. That's where the Free Church National Office is. He says he has visited small towns in Minnesota where, uh, he named one small town where Muslims have come in, they moved into the area, they bought a bowling alley and turned it into a mosque. Is the church going to look at that and say, what a gospel opportunity we've been given right in front of our face. The culture's changing. God is bringing people to us who need Him. And it's a wonderful opportunity for the gospel. And I heard him say that and I thought, that's the guy you want leading your denomination. Someone who sees beauty in people. Someone who sees other religions as people who need the king. And the king's bringing them to us in our town. So I don't know what's going to happen with Three Lakes and the Northwoods. I don't have a clue. But when he said small town Minnesota, I thought, this could be us. Will we be ready? Are we faithful with what we already have in front of us? Your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, the people that drive you nuts down the road. Are you faithful with them? Because whatever we do with the gospel, that's what our reward in heaven is based on. More responsibility for the king. The parable is sobering by the end. And we are at the end. The king calls in the subjects that said, we don't want you as king. And they were killed. Maybe, maybe you're here today and, and for a good part of your life you've said, I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want you to be king of my life. And when I was talking about that, maybe you felt like that was exactly what you were supposed to hear today. Because you're the one that came after and said, nope, don't want that guy. The king died for you. The king loves you. What is the, what is the first thing, actually the very first thing Jesus does after Palm Sunday, after he comes in on the donkey, people shout Hosanna. What's the first thing he does? He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. He sees the destruction coming and the king weeps. And the king weeps for you, perhaps. That you would know him, know his forgiveness from the cross. He paid for your sins. 
and follow him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes now?